Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what is the future of net neutrality? Uh, so first, I think we should just define what we're talking about. What is net neutrality? You've probably heard a lot about this in the news recently, uh, what with the FCC uh, proposing their new rules in the last week. But um, let's just give a definition of what is a neutral network, right? Uh, a neutral network is a network that treats all traffic equally and contains no intelligence in the network itself. So another way to phrase that uh, is that it's a dumb pipe. The pipe doesn't know what's going through it. It only knows the destination of the information. And uh, another way to say that is that uh, in a neutral network, the information is delivered on a best efforts basis. So it's not exactly the same as first come, first serve, but it's, that's the easiest way to think of it. If your information goes into the server first, it'll come out of the server first toward its destination. Right. The network has no way to know what it's carrying, so it doesn't have any basis on which to discriminate in terms of the types of information it's carrying. And right. It, it, so therefore, all the information gets equal treatment. Right, exactly. And that word discriminate is uh, the is the keyword for what the opposite of a neutral network is, right? The, if you want to think about what what isn't a neutral network, it's a network that discriminates or is biased. That's the term that uh, is traditionally used to describe the other kind of network. So to give you an example of a, a neutral network that you use every day, right, why don't we talk about the power grid, right? The power grid sure. is designed intentionally to be as neutral as possible. The power grid has no way of knowing if you're plugging in a toaster or a computer or a refrigerator, even though the refrigerator draws a lot more power than the computer does. It has no intelligence whatsoever uh, built in to to find that out, right? There's no way that, like, you know, it would know that you plugged in a PC instead of a Mac and then maybe make the PC charge faster or something because of some uh, right, preferential some agreement that, that was made. Uh, Microsoft has signed with, you know, Con Edison. It's, it, it, that isn't technologically possible on the power grid uh, because the power grid's a very dumb network and its only job is to get power to your house as efficiently and, and safely as possible. And you can plug in, you know, whatever you want within reason. I mean, you could you could make a device of your own creation and plug it in and if it's to spec, it's going to be powered. Right. Just same as anything else. Right, exactly. Another example of a neutral network, uh, and this is really important for the internet because the reason that the internet itself uh, has a history of being a neutral network is because its predecessor, the telephone network, was a neutral network, and that was not by design. That was actually something that happened due to law. So there's a story that we like to tell about this. Uh, it's the story of the Carter phone. Right. And you may have heard about uh, the Carter phone, or you might not have. It was a device that was invented in the 50s uh, for communicating uh, with offshore oil uh, rigs. So the guy who invented it owned some oil rigs or did some business with them, and he wanted to be able to call the oil rigs, but there was no way to run a telephone line out there. So instead, he invented a radio coupler, with a microphone and a uh, speaker, basically an inverted telephone receiver that uh, had a radio on it. And this allowed you to call from any telephone on the telephone network out to the rig through the radio coupler. So the device was basically a go-between between the phone network and uh, radio. Correct. It was just an extender via radio of sure. the phone itself. That's an easy way to think about it. It just yeah. extended the speaker and extended the microphone out to the rig using uh, two-way radio technology. So AT&T, which was the monopoly at that time that owned the telephone lines, and of course that was a highly subsidized monopoly, they said, well, you can't do that because uh, first off, we own those lines, and so you can't hook up any phone 
to the line. This that's, is AT&T That's speaking. not an AT&T phone. Right. At that time, you had to have an AT&T brand phone hooked up to your exactly. line. Exactly. Uh, because they own the lines. Uh, and also, they, they claimed that uh, it was if they were to allow unlicensed use of the lines, it would be a disaster because it would destroy the network. It's a typical fear-mongering tactic when right. you want to get your way. Yes. Well, they took this uh, into the court system, and it took 20 years, but uh, ultimately, they lost. And what that said as a precedent was that uh, there were uh, requirements that they allow anything that met the spec to be used on their lines. And that's why you are allowed to have uh, an answering machine, a fax machine, or back in the days when we used modems for the internet, the, uh, the only reason that consumer internet ever happened basically was because modems, digital modems, were invented and were allowed to be used with no permission. Right. So if, if we hadn't established this principle that you could attach any device to spec to AT&T's owned phone lines, right, uh, regardless of what AT&T wanted, which is they preferred you to use their They uh, preferred devices. to control the, the access because they can monetize that. That's scarce. But if, yeah, if we hadn't allowed people to use their own third-party devices, we wouldn't have had the adoption of modems, and we really wouldn't have the adoption of the internet probably as we see it today. Correct. Or it would have taken longer. It, it wouldn't have happened in the same way, and it wouldn't have had the... Uh, the tradition of neutrality that it's had, um, which I think everybody agrees has been an innovative thing. That Carter phone decision was really the basis of uh, then a, a series of uh, legal decisions that solidified neutrality in the phone network. And over time, through a series of regulations uh, ending with the 1996 Telecom Act, they imposed these common carriage requirements on the uh, carriers, which means that uh, they have to allow competition in who reaches consumers. That's why there used to be competition in ISPs. If you remember dial-up internet, you could buy dial-up internet from a local provider uh, instead of from AT&T. That's because of those common carriage requirements. Uh, also, if you ever uh, bought long-distance phone service from like a different company, that was also because of those requirements. In addition to that, any service that is classified as a telecom service under the uh, Telecommunications Act of 1996 is required to be a neutral network. Um, that's something that's just in the law, and there's a variety of reasons why that happened. But anyway, uh, that's what we're talking about when we talk about uh, neutral networks. And just to give you a quick example of a biased or a discriminatory network, what that is like, uh, that is a network that has intelligence built into it uh, that can somehow sort uh, the information that goes through the network. So one example of that uh, would be the cable TV network, right? which was built in the 80s in order to deliver high bandwidth video content to consumers in one direction. And there are a number of things that are different from cable television versus internet. This is maybe too obvious to even bother saying, but I'm just going to run through them quickly. Sure, sure. Uh, you, you know these already. Uh, you know, you need an expensive technological setup to run a cable network, but that's not actually the main barrier to entry. The main barrier to entry is you have to pay incredibly hefty fees to the existing cable carriers and that they actually... Uh, uh, have these long-term contracts guaranteeing low dial numbers to existing customers. So if you want to have a dial number that's you know uh, three digits or less, you basically have to buy an existing cable channel just to get on the cable network. The barriers to entry of cable are extremely high. Okay, you're talking about the barriers of entry to broadcast. To broadcast. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing is that... They're it, extremely high. If you compare it to the internet, I mean, you know they're higher, but compared to right. the internet... They're absurdly high. They're exponentially high. Yeah, I mean, well, so this brings up, you know, a related issue, which is that the neutral networks tend to create uh, an environment of two-way or, uh, or many-to-many communication, uh, whereas the non-neutral right. bias networks tend to create this one-way pipeline where it's going from 
you know, a few. Well, it can be from a few to many, a, a broadcasting sure. pipeline, or it can be a person to person, like the old telephone network right. in the old days before um, before Carter phone decision. But uh, it's much harder to have uh, a many-to-many type system like we have on the internet where anybody in their dorm room can then reach the whole world. That system is inherently biased against by any discriminatory network. Uh, So yeah, they're going to throw up major barriers to entry if you have a discriminatory uh, network for uh, for broadcasting. Uh, It's also going to make huge barriers to entry for uh, providing last-mile service, right? If I wanted to build uh, some cable lines in an area, hook them up to AT&T's cable lines, and then provide cable service downstream to uh, people, that would be illegal and also very technically difficult to do. Well, and I think maybe just to explain, like, last mile, I mean, obviously, you know, the bulk of the lines are, you know, in the middle of the network, so to speak, are going to be owned by usually just a few companies, right? But the last mile would be the the literally the final mile, the last stretch of the network as it reaches the consumer. Right. And those are owned by the same actually companies, but those are the parts of the line that historically they've been regulated and forced to rent out to other to companies. To have competition at that so point. So that you can actually get your service from someone else who then releases the line at a set rate. It's not that different from, say, the, the Carter phone where you're attaching a third-party device to the end of the network and you're allowed to do that you can attach sort of your own network right. to third, the end of the network. Third-party provider to the end yeah, of the network. Yeah, exactly. It's a very similar idea. So it creates competition at the ends of the network, but then that, you know, generally is more difficult in these biased right. situations. Right, or it's also its own complex technical challenge because the uh, most of the network is about getting from city A to city B in the straightest line uh, or something like that. But um, last mile... Uh, provision is about getting to individual houses and it's just you know it's a different it's a different challenge yeah it's a different challenge so there's a reason to separate those things and historically they have been somewhat separate uh that's another you know element of a of a biased network uh a a third element of a biased network is that uh like what we're talking about one builder owner operator with monopoly or near monopoly power essentially runs the entire non-last mile part of the network this is actually something that's you know, less the case with the internet, uh, where multiple large companies have been subsidized over the years, Comcast, Verizon, etc., to build out networks. So there's a few competitors, but um, with, uh, say, AT&T in the old days, it was literally one company running the entire thing, building every bit of it and controlling every bit of it. And, uh, and then the final thing which we mentioned is that you can't attach 30-party devices without permission on the TV network, uh, for example, if you get a, a scrambler to uh, to get illegal cable or something, they come after you, right? Um, well, and another thing, too, is that you get these tiered service models. When you have a monopoly provider, it's sort of, right, I'm sort of leading over that, but they are going to be heavily incentivized to create all kinds of artificial scarcity on the network and sell you additional tiers of service, uh, whether that's faster speed or more channels or however it's defined. Right. So that's definitely an, an element of a discriminatory network. And uh, one thing that I want to mention, uh, a discriminatory network is not necessarily a bad thing uh, for private networks. It adds value. Uh, if you go to the trouble of putting a huge capital outlay and building a huge physical network somewhere, and then you restrict access to it, basically... Uh, in order to make money, that makes sense, and that's reasonable. When that becomes a problem is when it's a public and not a private network. Nobody was suggesting back in the 90s that uh, AOL, which is a you know private network where you dialed into a central computer and got connected to other uh, people who were dialing into that computer, uh, needed to be neutral. They, they benefited from being discriminatory because they could give uh, people a better service that way. 
But when you have something like the internet, which is a public utility where um, it arguably is necessary for life these days, and it... Uh, well, and that's the problem, right? Is this, this boundary between public and private has a lot to do with, like, what do we think of the internet as? Do we see it as a public utility that's uh, mandatory for a uh, complete life? Right. Uh, or, or do we do see we, it as yeah. like a as a luxury service provided by companies, um, you know, to individuals and businesses? And I think the truth is actually somewhere in between because it is provided largely by companies, but those companies are heavily subsidized. And it's such an obvious public good uh, that like the telephone network, which was also a subsidized corporate private, you know, produ- production, uh, ultimately, it does need to be considered uh, as some kind of utility. And currently under law, it is. Under the 1996 uh, Telecom Act, they created a category called information services. Now, this was designed to describe CompuServe and AOL because the the internet as we know it didn't really exist then. But information services under the law are the most obvious thing to describe the type of utility that um, the internet is. Unfortunately, under that law, those services are not required to be neutral because, again, they were describing star networks, essentially, that would have actually had a big problem if they were neutral. They wouldn't have been as good. So that's uh, just an idea of what what you get if you are in a biased or discriminatory network. And if you've been reading about this debate recently, you might have seen a new term come into the debate. This is something I found in some of the defenses of letting net neutrality go, uh, is that they call a biased network by a different name. They call it a diverse network. Right, which is just substituting one word that sounds bad to everybody, biased. It sounds like it, it evokes connotations it evokes of racism, racism and discrimination yes. <laughs> with one diversity or diverse, which right. evokes the opposite. It evokes like we love everybody. And, and so I was immediately skeptical of this yeah. because it sounds so Orwellian. But right. I thought, well, you know, maybe there is a difference. And, and I read about it, and this is what I think that is being claimed. The claim is that higher paying information that goes faster doesn't, strictly speaking, uh, constitute the slowing down of other information. Now, my understanding of network dynamics is limited, but my feeling is that that's complete nonsense. Unless bandwidth is an unlimited resource, then giving more to person A ha- necessitates taking away from person B, right? I mean, the only way that I can imagine this not being the case is if uh, technological progress allows such rapid increase in new generation bandwidth, right? That you say, oh, the higher paying people can access the new lines, but we're going to do nothing to slow down the old lines, and we're going to rapidly build the new lines. You could maybe make an argument that we're keeping everything at the current speed and then boosting some others up, right? If you're just creating new bandwidth at a creating fast enough rate. Creating new bandwidth and only giving these high payers new bandwidth and never cutting into the old bandwidth. It sounds like it might theoretically be possible, but it seems also like sleight of hand because... It's, it's a false counterfactual to say that there was going to be no improvement in the internet elsewise, right? Uh, if we didn't do this, then the entire internet would get the benefit of any, whatever new technology. And so I, I still don't see this being any different from a normal bias network where you are throttling non-paying traffic in order to give better uh, treatment to paying traffic. Right. In other words, if new bandwidth uh, is being created or is becoming possible and you're not distributing that equally... Right. Then it's still a biased network, right? I mean... Well, this is, I think, an argument that is complicated because I think it depends where that bandwidth is being created. As long as that bandwidth is not being created inside the network as intelligence, I think you're actually still okay. Uh, But 
there's, there are ways to get around that. And this is why I want to talk about two examples real quick of ways that they're getting around that right now in the current system that are really interesting and sort of blur the lines. Wait, getting around what? Getting around the limitation of keeping the network architecture neutral while creating new bandwidth basically out of thin air. Well, and okay, and we have obviously like tiered bandwidth uh, services where like you can access the network faster or slower than somebody else, but within the network, it treats all information the same. Correct. Right, so there's not different tracks for different types of information. It's just that my overall speed for all data might be faster than your overall speed for all data. Correct, and that's always been allowed, and nobody is suggesting we should get rid of that. Because certain businesses might just need, or universities might just need a faster access. And sure. That's not, it's not, not crazy it, to have that. No, not at all, especially since there's technological reasons. You know, a T1 is just always going to be faster, or a T3 is right. always going to be faster than your home Just the connection. actual physical the infrastructure, physical, yeah. Right, exactly. So, and it's more expensive to install, so it just may as well operate as a, as a, as a blanket speed. But this isn't about that. This is about um, offering people who are sending information the ability to speed up their information, or the other way to describe this is by blackmailing everyone in the world to uh, speed up their information and threatening to throttle them if you don't. I mean, that's the same thing. They're two, two sides of the same coin. But I want to just get back on track for a second. Here's an example of something that nobody could have thought about 10 years ago when this debate started, uh, but I think is really interesting and is happening now. Uh, there are things called transit services, internet transit services, and they have come up uh, basically to solve the problem of internet video online. So internet video, because of the large file sizes and because of the time sensitivity of video, right, you don't want it to sit there and buffer, uh, it needs to have some intelligence and some caching to to make this happen. I mean, it's probably the most demanding thing of being sent over the network right now, at high volumes, other than maybe games, right? I mean, No, I think video is higher at yeah, this point. In and terms of usage. In terms of usage yeah. and in terms of demands on, on infrastructure. Right. So a couple of companies um, that have come out, uh, Level 3 is the most well-known you might have heard of, or Akamai is another company that has a similar service. I think that's, they're actually offering a slightly different service, but it, it does a similar thing. And essentially what these people do, uh, these companies, is that they build a lot of servers in smart places. They look at the design of the network and they figure out how to distribute a bunch of servers throughout the country. And then they write software that goes with their, the people who pay them, uh, goes to their partners and figures out using publicly available data where the requests are coming from as best as it can and then sorts how to serve those requests from the most convenient servers, uh, which then also have you know uh, redundant copies of the content in question, so that they can get you that Netflix video or that uh, Daily Show video or whatever without the buffering. And uh, that's a major way that online video has been enabled in the last decade, uh, even though Internet Backbone actually hasn't gotten that much better in that amount of time. So it does work, and it does end up giving the people who can pay them a kind of, you know, internet fast lane, if you will. Well, and the people paying them are other businesses, right? I mean, they're a business-to-business service. So So, so we're talking, just to be totally clear, about a company that would interface between another company like Netflix that wants to deliver fast video to consumers uh, as sort of a go-between to help route their traffic. Correct. So they interface between Netflix and, say, Comcast, right? Comcast has the end user and the, uh, the... a lot of the backbone too. Um, Netflix has the content. They want to get to the end user quickly, so they contract with somebody like Level Three, 
who has co you know who has locations all over the place and can figure out with their own intelligence that sits at the end of the network it doesn't it's not built into the lines how to route the traffic for good enough performance now uh, that's been something that's been built up on top of the neutral net uh, but it does provide a kind of fast tier service to those who can afford it so it doesn't it, um, Those who can afford it, in this case being Netflix, right? I mean, in being in that yeah. case being Netflix, yeah. And uh, w one of the things that's happened recently, um, which you may not realize, I didn't realize this until I did some research on this recently, is you might have heard about a Comcast Netflix deal recently that happened right after back in January when the FCC's working net neutrality rules that used to be around were thrown out. There was a deal between Comcast and Netflix, and people thought that this was a, basically an end to net neutrality. What they actually signed in that deal is they signed a transit services deal with Comcast. So essentially they contracted with Comcast to do the same thing that Level 3 has been doing for them, to place their stuff at strategic places in Comcast's network in order to reach the users differently. So they're cutting better. out the middleman so being Level 3. They're cutting out the middleman of Level 3, and the reason they're cutting them out is not because they want to pay that money to Comcast instead of Level 3. It's because, according to Netflix, this is what they've alleged, Comcast has allowed its connections to Level 3 to deteriorate, thereby making Level 3's service work less well. So essentially, Comcast has behaved, they claim, anti-competitively, and then started offering a competing service to the service that Level 3 is offering. And I think it's a complicated question to, uh, to think about how actually is it different from uh, Level 3 uh, offering this service uh, if Comcast offers it. And the answer to me is that it's an antitrust issue because anyone can compete with Level 3. Level 3 is not the only company doing that. And if I want to compete with them, I just raise some capital, build some servers, figure out some network logistics, and write some software. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's doable. On the other hand, no one can compete with Comcast, especially if they are going to allow their links to anyone who does try to compete with them to deteriorate. Well, I feel like this recalls, like, you know, some of the things we talked about at the beginning of the episode, right, about uh, third-party right. devices or carriers being allowed to, right. you know, Right, so you can see that it, it still does erode net neutrality uh, if you, if you uh, have Comcast competing for transit services, even though transit services are something that really uh, couldn't have been imagined uh, uh, 10 years ago. And then I, I want to give another quick example of this um, because I think this is such an interesting concept, this like sort of you know, getting around neutrality without actually getting rid of okay, the neutrality so in the so network. We're, we're, we're talking about just big picture here in this section of the podcast. We're talking about uh, cases where the network is still dumb, right? It's still not discriminatory. Right. These are things that are happening now on our current dumb network. and But yet it's still allowing uh, tiered results, right? Correct. Correct. These are things that uh, still allow some high-paying users to go faster than other users, but without throttling. There's no throttling. There's no uh, metering. There's no inspection of packets in these systems. Which are all um, ways of, of taking which are specific the, information in the middle of the network and right. uh, identifying what it is. And, and it's what's at issue with net neutrality. It's ultimately, that's what we're talking about at the end of the day with net neutrality. So this would still be allowed uh, under an, uh, in a neutral network. Um, so the next example I want to give is, is high-speed trading. Uh, what they do is called uh, co-locating. And uh, if you've read the new Michael Lewis book, uh, Flash Boys, this is what that's all about. And that's a really fascinating model where you pay the stock exchange to put your computer in the same room as the stock exchange, and they literally pay more to get their computer closer physically 
to the exact server that's got the exchange in it. Um, because those microseconds of just having less cable between you and the box. Well, that's exploiting the physics of the situation. Exactly. Yeah. They exploit the physics of the situation. Uh, and now the exchanges have turned this into a scarcity that they sell. So they, they monetize this scarce physics, the reality that, well, if your computer's closer, then all else equal, you're going to get there faster. And they sell it to these high-frequency traders who are using it to do end runs around the market. So inside of a dumb network that is neutral by our definition, you can just use straight-up physics to get differentiated results. So, I mean, is the upshot of all these examples that a completely neutral network is essentially impossible uh, but that it's a question of degree like how neutral is it this is a spectrum right it's not like is it neutral is it non-neutral it's just like we're always trying to push it in the more neutral direction but that it's really a a a fuzzy spectrum exactly all networks have some bias uh this is being used as a justification for having less neutrality in the network going forward the people who are putting forth the idea of diverse networks in various uh, position papers, they are in favor of re- getting rid of net neutrality on the internet. And they believe that the existence of co-location and transit services and the fact that they exist on our current internet is proof that an unequal internet will still work or that an un- a non-neutral internet will still work. They believe that the current internet, because it's not perfectly neutral, uh, perhaps, although actually I think you can disagree with that. Uh, this is the argument that's being made, uh, is that uh, the current internet, because there are things like co-location and transit services happening, is already non-neutral and should therefore uh, not try to be additionally non-neutral So would an analogy for that be, uh, well, everybody's a little biased, therefore we might as well be full-blown racist? I think that that is, uh, yeah, a very uh, distasteful <laughs> um, uh, analogy to that. Yeah, I, I don't buy this argument. And um, I think that, in in fact... The, the antitrust component makes uh, transit service very different uh, from n- network non-neutrality. And as far as the high-speed traders co-locating with the stock exchanges, there's nothing you can do about physics. But uh, right now, we do have stock exchanges who are not allowing co-locating because they realize it's an unfair practice. And uh, those stock exchanges are competing with the other stock exchanges. You know, I don't know who's going to win, but that's, um, that's a fight that's going on. So I, I don't find this to be a very good uh, <laughs> argument for it, but I think it's an argument that's out there. I wanted to address it. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right that the we're talking about a spectrum. And on the other side of the spectrum, something I've heard is that people say that a network can't be neutral if it has minimum requirements. But I think that's nonsense. All networks have minimum requirements. Um, highways are neutral for cars, for example, but they're not neutral for bikes. You can't take a bike on the highway uh, because uh, it would be dangerous for those set of rules to be applied to a bike. However, it's, you know... Well, that's just like, at the beginning of this podcast, we talked about being to spec being as to a spec. requirement. Exactly. Right? So you have to, your car has to be, you know, certain dimensions and have certain features and be able to go a certain speed to right. save it. Right, it actually allowed. is a highly regulated product. The yeah. government makes all kinds of rules for cars uh, they have to, requ- uh, to meet in order to go out on the freeway. Uh, TCP IP requires uh, that data be formed in a particular way. Uh, for example, it has to say where it's going. Otherwise, TCP IP doesn't know what to do with it. Um, but TCP IP is designed intentionally not to ask anything else. And uh, uh, the power grid, which we talked about being neutral, obviously all it cares is that you have the right shape plug and that you uh, draw the right uh, range of volts. And that's it. I mean, those are extremely simple requirements. Uh, they are low barriers to entry, but all networks have requirements. So we're not saying that the network can't have any requirements. We're not saying that the network can't provide any uh, functional tier of service, like in transit services or co-location. We're just saying that the the network itself ought to continue to be a dumb pipe design that 
doesn't discriminate uh, internally. And I think we should talk about why that's important, because there's two areas that matter for this, but one of them is commonly given and the other one is almost never mentioned. So I think we should go over them both, but I want to spend some extra time on the second one. Uh, do you want to talk about the, uh, the free speech issues or... So, yeah, I mean, obviously one of the, the first concerns that pops into your mind if you have a, a biased network is that it is going to discriminate between who can speak over that network, right? And so since we're, we really are talking about speech here, I mean, we're talking about uh, people sending literally words back and forth to each other over these networks in various formats, uh, ideas. Well, one thing I'll say is that a biased network is an extremely easy lever to clamp down on speech you don't like. Right. I mean, like, imagine the the town square, the sort of like, you know, thought experiment, fictional place where free speech occurs, like in the past. I mean, this is, you know, where people talk and share ideas and you can, you know, jump up on a soapbox and shout and preach to the masses, right? Right. That whole sort of ideal of free speech and free sharing of ideas uh, where, you know, people can even say horrible, hateful things if they want uh, without being judged. Uh, but at the same time, they can also say things that might be innovative or go against society without being judged. Uh, in real space, I mean, what can you do? You can you can send in uh, the cops and you can arrest the person who's saying the thing that you don't like. Right. Um, but on the network, it takes a different form. It's almost like everybody's got like an electronic voice box in their throat that you can turn like you can turn everybody's volume up and down. I mean, there's like if you imagine it being that way, like the, the person goes up to speak in the center of the town square, and if somebody doesn't like what they're saying, they can just kind of maybe even subtly change it a little bit, right? There's a, and, you know, that sounds like a crazy far-fetched scenario, but really that's what can actually happen on the network is that the speech can be transformed or made, uh, I mean, how this actually would happen is that, you know, certain types of information would just not appear. You might search for something, it might not be there, or certain types of information might just be slower uh, because somebody determined that that information was... Uh, less desirable or dangerous, sure. right? And this, we already have this happening right. so in places like China. I mean, right. The yeah. terms for that are blocking and throttling, right? right. You've probably heard those terms, and uh, those are Tim Wu's terms, who's who's one of the thinkers about this. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, it creates all these levers, like literally at, in people's throats, essentially, like mm. at the place they're trying to create the speech, um, and it, it, at their ears, right? You know, it's like it's literally sensory control, right? Um, in a way that would never be possible in physical space. Right. Um, right. And if you're somebody like we are who believes that you know, increasingly uh, networks and computer spaces are where we spend our time and, and where the world is, this just gets da- more and more dangerous um, as, as time goes on. Uh, it's, it's also an element that you hear a lot about, about uh, you know, media consolidation, competition in the media space. Because we live in a you know, capitalist uh, corporate uh, society where a lot of media ownership is con- you know conglomerated uh, the fact that this would be a major advantage to those companies that are large and can pay the fee versus those that are small I mean the analogy there is payola which uh, we all agree was bad for radio and we got together and stopped it I mean competition yeah we uh, so uh, we were talking just about speech but you're bringing up competition which competition I think is, in media particularly we, yeah. yeah we like uh, which is the corporate version of speech you know it's yeah like, you know, corporatized I mean, speeches I mean competition is clearly a value in our society and you know this is a place where you know it's really easy to shut out competition and to tend towards monopoly right if you create high and higher barriers to entry uh, in this space, um, and because it's all wrapped up with speech as well, and it's not just like, you know, providing soap to people, it's even more threatening, right? I mean, like, right. who cares if there's a soap monopoly 
uh, but or, you care a, a lot. soap opera monopoly, really, but you care yeah. a lot about a news monopoly. Right. For example. Or, yeah, even just a, you know, a direct communication monopoly, right. you know, well, in terms of worse. like, right. uh, you know, phone, email, that type of thing. Sure. And that's, uh, you know, something that probably uh, other people have argued more cogently, and you can find good arguments online for why uh, net neutrality is important if you care about speech and you care about um, uh, competition in markets. But some people don't care about that, and I think it's fair not to care about those things. Obviously, I do care about them, but uh, but I think you should actually support net neutrality anyway, and I think there's another reason for it that's right. in a way more important, that gets it's less sexy and it gets less... Because I think you could write off the first one by saying, yeah, that's not, this isn't China. That's not going to happen. Or like, you could just be like, social norms will fight against it in America. And we've been living with, uh, you know, semi, uh, semi non-neutral networks in our life for a while now. And we haven't seen, um, anything too bad in that regard. There's been here and there some reports of throttling, but nothing too terrible. Nothing's really been proven. Well, and like already like, you Uh, know, news reporting is not as good as it could be. And the information that's available to the public is not as good as it could be. And so we're we're used to living with a certain amount of flaws. Right. There's lots of societal reasons why that is. And it's maybe overdetermined. It's not just this neutrality issue. So I want to move on for a second and talk about another reason why uh, from a network design point of view, from an engineering standpoint, a dumb network is smarter. And uh, this is sort of multifaceted. So let's talk, let's break it down. Number one, the main reason is because it's the fastest solution. A, a simple thought experiment will show you this, right? Imagine a uh, on-ramp to the freeway. You know, those little on-ramps where they have a light that lets, you know, one car through per green or two cars through per green. And right. they meter the traffic, you know, to deal with congestion. So let's imagine that you built one of those where everybody can just go onto the freeway as soon as the light turns green, right? You pull up, light turns green, you go on. Then let's imagine another ramp that looks exactly the same, except now every car has to stop and we have to check if it's a Subaru. And if it is a Subaru, it gets to go 100 miles an hour when it gets on the highway. But if it's not a Subaru, it has to go the regular speed like everybody else, right? Subaru is marked on the outside of the car. It's relatively easy to find but it's still going to require you to stop every single car and just double check, is that a Subaru or is that not a Subaru? And then you can get moving, right? right. That is going to be a much, much slower intersection than the on-ramp that doesn't have that. And you can easily imagine why. Every time you check, that's slowing the whole thing down. That's called metering. And it's fundamentally a bottleneck in a network because if the network is spending processor cycles and information time and uh, uh, energy to inspect the packets and figure out what they are, determine if they're a Subaru or not, then it's not spending that time routing the information out of the pipe. And it's just a truism that that's always going to be a slower network because you're just not putting all of your available resources toward moving things. And then I think there's an even bigger lesson, which is also an engineering sort of point of view, uh, that comes from the Carter phone thing, which is this. The designers of the phone network never thought that radio couplers would be used on the phone network. And they certainly never thought about answering machines, fax yeah, yeah. machines, or internet modems, right? I mean, the fact that uh, packet switching was required uh, of the phone system for purely functional reasons way back in the 60s, and then common carriage got put in later, just accidentally created a really good network on which to run the internet. But the internet was not the intended use of that network at all. Uh, it wasn't even in their minds. Uh, and we all benefited from from that. 
And this is just a function of the weakness of our prediction capabilities as people. Like right. we can't anticipate uh, what the future technologies will be uh, in great detail and like what the best use of a particular network will be. So the more you de design it right with a particular uh, type of information or format of information in, in mind, right. uh, the more you potentially close the door on other types of information that might be incredibly useful in the future that you're not anticipating. Right. One thing the internet has taught us now, which we didn't even know before, is that uh, an information network is not is best thought of as a general purpose technology like computers or electricity uh, that can be set to an infinite number of uses rather than being thought of as an application specific thing like water or you know <laughs> something that you know you're only going to use it to make things wet. Uh, in general, if you have the option of creating something to be general purpose rather than application specific. Um, that's the better move from an engineering standpoint. So it if, makes it more flexible, more reusable, and uh, more future-proof. So, so basically, yeah, if we redesign uh, the entire internet to sort of optimize for uh, video distribution, say, right. uh, then you know we're potentially closing the door on some other thing that we might need to uh, send and receive in the future. I mean, it's. I mean, I can't say what that is because that's the whole point here is that nobody knows what that is. If we knew what it was, we would obviously design our network for that, but. The, the rule basically is that we can't fully anticipate the future, so we want to make a way for innovation that we can't currently conceive of and create an environment where, you know, anything can thrive. Right. Possibly. Well, and this is a futurism podcast, right? And we talk a lot about, like, the crazy things that we think are coming down the line relatively quickly. I mean, if in the 60s it was impossible to imagine the Internet coming 30 years later, then, and you also buy the idea that, uh, you know, technological progress is accelerating and we're seeing more and more progress with each year, then it should be very easy for you to buy the concept that we definitely don't know what we want from a network 10 or 15 or 20 years from now. Like if we're sending crazy virtual okay. reality sensory smell, Right, direct sensory data. synthesis data may be so much more dense than video data, like, because we don't even know. Maybe it won't go over, like, like video formats very smoothly, right? And then it'll be, then we're, like, inherently compressing that. Right, well, if we've built a huge pipeline to basically be a Netflix, uh, you know, fast lane, uh, that may not, they may, may be just, like, a complete waste of, you know, infrastructure if 10 years from now... That's a minority of what we're sending around the network. The only thing we really know about the internet for, of the future that we're sure of is we want it to be as fast as possible because whatever we're sending, it's bound to be data. And whatever uh, data it is, it's bound to benefit from faster connection. So uh, it makes sense for us to use the engineering approach that's going to be fastest instead of the engineering approach that's going to be most limited to our current needs. We have no idea what the Internet of the Future is going to be like. It might be direct sensory synthesis, you know, crazy uh, data files, or it might be 80% text, you know? I mean, we've talked about this in the past. Sometimes the low-attention medium wins, and... The well, people might take care of their video and other, like, higher bandwidth needs in a completely different format that's, right. like, you know, maybe that's not... Maybe video pr compression gets, like, massively cracked a few years from now, and all of a sudden video file sizes drop to a quarter of their current size. Yeah, maybe you can carry yeah. around like all the world's like video in, you know, something the size of your smartphone. And so like you don't even need to go online for it. You just carry a library right, in your right. pocket. You, you update it once a day or something. Right, exactly. I mean, it, it's, you know, we don't know how it's going to get built. Uh, we're not sure. And that's the whole point. So we should build a general purpose network, uh, which is going to be superior to this application specific network, which may be obviously superior in one instance, uh, like video delivery, but then will fail in, in other uses. 
And then the, the third thing I was going to mention, which we actually kind of talked about in here, is just uh, that, you know, when you have this bias network, it creates really nasty incentive for the line owners. Um, the people who own the lines, it, they would be stupid <laughs> not to slow down everyone's traffic and then charge everyone who could possibly pay for it the maximum amount they can possibly afford to pay for the speed that they need. It's a classic uh, example of, you know, free samples to get you hooked, and then we raise the price. There's been an internet for a long time, and a lot of businesses and people just rely on it all day, every day. And if all of a sudden those people need to pay more to get good access, either up or down, which is just one of the inherent do flaws in any any monopoly situation, and this is clearly. I mean, right. this is we're talking. I mean, really, the the whole premise underlying all this is that this stuff is so important because it interfaces with free speech, because it's a uh, utility that we use constantly in our daily lives now. Yeah. Uh, that it's for the public good. Uh, we can't really allow a full blown monopoly. I mean, we can have. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect competition and that's probably an ideal that's impossible, but we need to like, you know, treat it, uh, we need to aggressively push back against any monopoly entering this field because it's so critical to our daily lives. Right. Well, and, and so much of what's made the internet actually valuable in our lives has been enabled by its neutral status. So we want to, it's very conservative in the sense that we want to keep the internet the way it's been, uh, allow it to get faster and for technology to improve, but ultimately for the rules to stay the same because the rules have worked. Uh, they've provided us with lots of competition and lots of innovation. And so, uh, you know, you may have been following what's been happening politically lately. This uh, podcast doesn't usually get very political uh, for a variety of reasons, just not our focus, plus a lot of other people do that. So, but we're going to get pretty political here. I want to, you know, I want to take both parties to task for this because neither major party is supporting network neutrality at this point, and uh, and that's a big change for the Democrats who who campaigned. Uh, they talked least, about it a lot. Campaigned uh, strongly supporting it. At least Obama did, and and Janachowski, who was the last FCC chair before this current guy, was also a strong uh, proponent before he took office. Um, so basically, this controversy started in about 2002, if you've been not following it for the past decade or so. This was something that John and I have been concerned about basically that entire time. It was like sort of the first thing I think we ever really worked on together was our, our college project about uh, network neutrality. And, uh, and the, ultimately, the argument is very much the same today as it was then. Uh, that's when cable broadband really started to take off. And uh, dial-up, of course, as we, as we mentioned, was un unambiguously... Uh, under the Carter phone era net neutrality regulations. But what happened was uh, due to some lobbying under the in the Bush administration, I think it was 2002 or 2003, cable and DSL were reclassified as information services instead of telecom services in, under that 1996 act. And therefore, they uh, argued they were no longer regulated by net neutrality. Um, and there were a couple of thinkers, uh, Lawrence Lessig and Tim Wu were the two most important uh, who really led the fight. Uh, and, and sort of popularized that term of net neutrality. And they argued, um, you know, this argument that we've basically given you right now. And uh, the FCC came up with rules that basically said, well, even though it's, we can't really tell you to do this, we're telling you to do it anyway. And, and that sort of worked for the last 10 years or so. I mean, um, there have been some bumps and there have been some evidence of some throttling and such. But for the most part, we've been living in in a relatively neutral network for the last 10 years, even though the regulations have been basically dismantled. Well, and the old FCC argument was that, you know, 
there's just going to continue to be different mediums, right? For right. or different and that network comp- types. Competition it, is just going to cause this to and and technological progress. Because you have you know DSL right. and you have uh, the old phone network and you have uh, cable lines and that like competition between these different networks would actually give rise to good service even if you don't broadly apply this principle of neutrality to all of these mediums. Right. And there was also an assumption at that time that there'd be actually ISP competition at the local level, although we know though that that's not true. I mean, most people only have one broadband provider in their city at this point. And even here in Los Angeles, we only have two. And that's a, you know, a huge city. It makes no sense. Um, and then so there was uh, one big deal that was made uh, in the interim, which is that uh, they made a deal with the cell phone carriers that they would not require neutrality over cell phone networks. So if you've been accessing the internet over the cell phone, that's been a non-neutral network for the last several years, and they are throttling cell phone traffic in order to give people a better experience on their cell phones, the argument there was that bandwidth limitations of the cell phone network basically required uh, for a good experience them to do that. And the deal that was struck was they would allow that in exchange for uh, cable and DSL uh, formally staying neutral. Uh, which at the time I thought was a dumb idea because to me wireless is the future and uh, wired is the past and I felt like that was giving away the future for the past. But uh, it turns out that I wasn't nearly cynical enough because in January the D.C. Circuit Court uh, found that those rules were totally um, outside of the FCC's authority anyway and they threw them out. They said that information services like uh, cable and DSL despite that deal, there's no authority for the FCC under current law to require them to be neutral. So that happened back in January, and that really started the current battle. At that time, uh, the FCC uh, was being run by this guy, uh, Wheeler, who's the current head, and he is a former cable industry lobbyist, and he seems to have been appointed as part of a political deal, uh, from what I can tell, to gut net neutrality. I think that's his purpose, because Janichowski actually wouldn't wouldn't do it. So he's now uh, drafted some rules that uh, would allow tiered service, and they have some language about commercial reasonability. So there's basically a lever for the FCC to prosecute after the fact if they don't like what happens. But everybody who's looked, who's looked at this has pretty much agreed uh, this would be a non-neutral network. This would be building a bias network for the future. And, and it would be a bad idea for all the reasons that we've stated. Yeah, I mean, you really just can't stress how potentially bad this gets in the future. <laughs> I know I know that we've already covered the, the negatives, but I'm just like, I keep coming back to like, you know, the... <laughs> I mean, it's literally giving away the rights to our communication with each other. I mean, it's, it's like if you think that the Internet is as important in the future and that computers are as obviously important in the future as we feel, it's just like literally giving away like ownership, like I said earlier, like of our of our sense organs, like of our ability to speak to each other, of our yeah. ability to hear each other. Yeah. Because at a certain point, you know, you're uh, the whole Cory Doctorow point of like sort of everything's becoming a computer. I mean, we're going to be putting them in our ears and putting them in our eyes and like putting them in our throats. And that's all going to be on this same network that's owned by a few companies. And then it's like they literally control the connections between people. Right. It's and like if you upload your brain into a server, then they could potentially control your entire reality. I'm sorry. I just need to bring this into the far future because <laughs> this is a future podcast. Right? But, but like, yeah, I mean, that is the, the... I mean, that's the ultimate endpoint of it just being the worst possible situation, right? Is that you uh, you wake up inside a computer and you're, you know, you're presented with a menu of options. How much would you like to pay right. for how much speed? 
and uh, you can't opt out because you're 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 in there. And the problem is, you know, politicians can't talk about it on that level because they they'll sound like crackpots, and maybe we sound like crackpots for talking about it. But I don't think so because I think it, this is this is clearly the trajectory we're on, and well, I think you have to be insane to not see that that's the trajectory we're on. Right. Like, I mean, well, that may be a very far way off, obviously, but the I interim think steps setting, are just as bad. The interim steps are potentially just as bad because speech is important now. You don't you don't need to imagine it being a brain upload to imagine it being. Really bad. Just imagine, you know, the difference between living in China right now and the difference between uh, living in America well, right now. You don't now. need a brain upload. Just, you just need Google Glass and an inner ear translator that's on the network. And, like, you just need, like, a couple, like, you know, wearable computer sure. enhancements that are, like, 10 years off. I'm not, you know, it sure. doesn't have to go to mind uploading to get to bad. Sure. Well, no, and it doesn't need to go past today. I mean, if you look at what's going on on the internet in China right now, I'd much rather have American internet than Chinese internet today. And the reason is because the government censors it, which is just one of the many potential problems of having a bias network. It's not the only one, not, right. not by a long shot. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's the current situation. As you can imagine, a lot of us out here on the internet are very upset about this and uh, are hoping that uh, that they're going to do something better. A lot of the activists, uh, particularly on the left, are pushing for the FCC to just unilaterally reclassify the service as a telecom service, which it could do. Uh, it was classified as telecom service before 2002, and of course, there's an extremely good argument for classifying DSL and cable as uh, telecom services, which is that uh, VOIP, Voice Over Internet Protocol, exists, and therefore all internet services are telecom services. Um, now, they're more properly info services. I get that, and I understand that somebody might uh, feel like they're really bending the spirit of the law by doing that. Well, but if we were being really elegant about it, we would reclassify all this stuff as a new category of... In well, I mean, information service and a te telecom service, all telecom services are an information service to some degree. And, you know, it's just, there's, there's, there's slippery categories to begin with, and they're old. So they maybe, uh, they maybe don't... Yeah, trying to fit new technologies into old boxes is clearly dumb. And like, the, as a general principle, I mean, that's something it, that we need to just shed. Yeah, well, it often doesn't work, but it's often just a pragmatic thing, you know. And uh, in this case, uh, reclassifying uh, politically is apparently seen as nuclear option and is totally off the table. Uh, By the way, here's a pragmatic thing. Any of these new laws and decisions should have an expiration date built into them because of the rate of change, right? I mean, like none of this, these decisions, like no matter how bad they are or how good they are, uh, they, should, they should all be set to expire on a very sh quick time frame, right? Right. Well, and another point to, you know, slightly Pollyanna-ish point to bring up uh, along those lines is this could all easily be solved if we had a functional Congress because it could just debate and then pass a law, uh, which would give, right? I, well, that's why Larry Lessig quit this issue to work on corruption instead. Right. It's <laughs> because after 10 years of working on it, not a single thing had changed because the whole system is so screwed up. And, uh, you know... I we, we I understand that point of view, um, but in the meantime, this is still a problem. So, yeah, uh, we can't get Congress to reclassify. To the extent that we could get them to reclassify, it would actually be a disaster because the Republicans are completely against network neutrality because they see it as government regulation, and the Democrats are now against it too because they're apparently in the pocket of the uh, uh, the line owners. Uh, so that get, leaves us with nobody supporting what should be, I think, uh, supported by people on both sides of the spectrum, because if you care about free speech, like most liberals do, you should support it. And if you care about uh, free market competition, I think you should support it, um, you know, like most conservatives do, because it basically is just a regulation that creates a market, much like uh, contract law. 
it just basically creates a level playing field on the internet on which people can compete. Right, but you have to address uh, people's knee-jerk response, which know. is the fact that the the lines are seen as a form of property, and it's seen as like the government telling. Sure, uh, the, it's an economic burden, absolutely. The, on line, the line owners, owners. yeah, what it to do with is. their own property, which is that I think that's the conservative sort of theory against it, right? I mean, right, and and I think that that's completely fair. I think anytime you're making an economic burden on property owners, um, you have to justify it. But I think the public good is so incredibly justified in this case uh, that it falls well into the you know historical examples that we uh, do regulate private ownership, such as the telephone network, the railroad network, other things that were a heavily subsidized to be built in the first place, and b of tremendous use to society. And this is something that meets both those criteria. So in the same way that uh, conservatives historically have supported uh, some basic market-making regulations uh, on Wall Street, some you know basic regulation of, of railroads and uh, telephones, uh, I think that they should support this as well. Uh, so basically, we're in a situation where politically the FCC could act unilaterally. It has the constitutional authority to simply reclassify and it's apparently not going to do that for political reasons. I don't know the whole inside story or whatever, but uh, from what I've been able to glean reading online, it appears as if that's off the table. So perhaps there's uh, somebody in Congress who's you know threatened to go ballistic or whatever, but um, they are not doing that. Uh, the only other option is for uh, Congress to pass a law, and Congress obviously hasn't you know is not going to pass a law. That's simply not going to happen. We've got gridlock. You may have heard. Um, Congress doesn't pass laws. I mean, our Congress. Doesn't pass laws. This Congress has passed very few laws. Um, they do pass laws on Netflix shows. Yeah, on on House of Cards, they <laughs> they pass a lot more they pass laws. A lot of laws. But that is based on a British show, and my feeling is that that's something that they should have changed in the adaptation. Is you know that uh, they have a parliamentary they pass system. Pass like a law every Britain, every episode. So and, like, they can. House of Cards. They, yeah, they, I I it's it's amazing how much law gets passed in that show. Uh, I feel like a realistic version of that show would be about how in every episode he stops a law from being passed. This is the situation now. We're almost certainly going to lose network neutrality as it's been known uh, moving forward. So what can be done? I think we should talk about that. What What is the potential future for those of us who care about neutral networks? Well, I, I think the instinct of, uh, you know, technology types is to think, well, okay, so the yeah. legal framework is hopelessly screwed right yep. now. Uh, maybe there's a... Like, and the centralized a, system is broken. Right. Basically. Maybe there's a technological end run. Maybe right. there's a... How can I decentralize this? How can I just decentralize this by just making something uh, that nobody can stop me from making right. uh, and sort of uh, working around How can we take the, the like Linux or Bitcoin approach to the problem of non-neutral networks? And I think there kind of is an answer, right? Which is net mesh networks. Yes. I, I mean, this seems like the most promising direction that I can think of, which, which hopes to be uh, almost a really peer-to-peer uh, type of network, right? It's easiest to imagine, I think, in a densely populated area, right? I mean, given the, the current limitations, right? It's like if sure. You had... So you have basically every user becomes a node is the simple way right. to describe it. So instead of there being a difference between servers and clients, the way the internet is now. Everybody's a server and a client. Everybody's a server and a client. And every client has to be a server. It's actually very similar to the way, you know, BitTorrent works. The information is broken down like BitTorrent into small little bits that everybody has a part of, right? right? And they're all sort of shared collectively. So you're actually carrying, like, let's say you have a little device that's a mesh network enabled device. You're actually carrying some fraction of the internet with you. Right. uh, 
at all times. That's always being updated and checked. And, and the network out. is making sure that there's always enough of the right fractions of the internet in each location. To do, or as, as best it can. So that right. like, you can, like, you might be missing something on your current device, so you'd make a request to the next node over, which would make a request, and somewhere nearby it would be able to find the little packets of information that you needed on somebody's device, right, right? Right, And the current internet already has some of this type of decentralization built into it, like the way DNS works, which sure. is, you know, everybody's got their own copy of DNS. But you could actually design a whole network based around this principle. Uh, right now, I think the biggest technological limitation of that is Wi-Fi, which is crap technology. Right. But uh, we've one thing that the Obama administration did that I that I really support is uh, they unli- they made a whole bunch of unlicensed white space available a few years ago that is supposedly eventually going to lead to a super Wi-Fi, which will allow, you know, like one unit to uh, serve like a football field size uh, area and go through buildings and uh, walls uh, much better than Wi-Fi does. Right. Which once we get to that point, it might actually make sense for people to build this on their own in their town, in their community. If you had that technology and you just actually made a consumer device, right, that was enabled to talk to other devices of the same brand even... Mm-hmm. Right, and you have, or just that follow the same rules, right? Because that's the whole thing, right? Make it neutral, and you know you have an adoption problem there. I mean, you have you need the you need enough people to be carrying those devices around in that area to make this viable. Sure, but you might be able to get you know enough adoption to get that to take off, right? Perhaps by like bundling that capability with you know other traditional network access capabilities. So maybe when you buy the device, that's like an option that you have. Right, right. I it mean, might might start off as a parallel network. Like similar to like what you might do with cars and like flex fuel or something like that. Yeah, or, like, or even uh, cell phones can go on Wi-Fi and they can also go on the cell network, which right now that's an example right. of reaching a non-neutral and a neutral network at the same, you know, with the same device. So you just have a third radio on there that's local mesh right. that uses super Wi-Fi instead of the other radio types. And, uh, and in the short term, that might be extremely useful in a place like a major city. Sure. And then in the long term, it might end up actually creating a parallel free, free net or neutral net that can... Uh, exist alongside the uh, the corporate net. Uh, another thing that might work, uh, and this is obviously a much more left-wing option, is a, is a government option for internet, right? I've had this idea for years that I think this is what they should do with the post office. Yes, so they yeah, should definitely. transform the post office into an internet that's available to everyone at either low cost or free. And uh, they could use existing post office land to build the towers or line stations or whatever they need. And they, they could use it to justify the elimination of paper mail, which is something else they ought to do. So they still obviously have the post office for parcel post. We don't need that's a whole different topic. We don't need to get into that. Right. But paper mail is useless basically in this day and age and it's a big drain. It's very expensive. So if they stopped offering it and instead offered a, you know, bill paying, letter sending, email, you know, internet service, uh that was as long as it was good enough to do those things, it wouldn't even need to be as good as commercial service. Uh it could be slower. Uh, but it would be like a sort of minimum that everybody would have access to. And then I feel like in that world, if there's a neutral network that the government runs that exists that people have access to, then at that point, if private companies want to build their own private faster networks that also exist, I have a lot less of a problem with it. Right. Well, that's where the Um, government competes with the private space. I I think that that's a great idea. It would just be way more efficient for society to, you know, pretty much nationalize the internet. But of course, that raises all these other contemporary fears about surveillance right. uh, and rear their head when you start Which getting into that. legitimate, obviously, yeah. and, uh, and government control. I'm not sure. I mean, for the same reason that I support private ownership of media, um, 
I'm not sure that I would want the government being the only owner of the internet. Yeah, you're talking about a competitive but, environment. Uh, yeah. But a government option uh, where the government provides a floor for people's access, at least you'll have this, and also potentially competes on the level of provides neutrality, which then and then leaves it up to private providers to provide neutrality if they want, that might give people uh, the chance to use both and make a rational choice. So in that case, perhaps the competition would drive them to be neutral anyway, even though uh, the short term, uh, obviously, incentive is for them to non be non-neutral and, and extract rents from what they've already built. Uh, they might think, well, in the long term, in order to retain customers and compete against this government system, we have to maintain at least a semblance of neutrality, which would be a good thing. Right. But but a robust competitive environment also potentially implies that they're meeting different niches, which maybe implies a sort of uh, ecosystem of specifically biased, but biased for different things, networks that are right. competing against each other, right? Which is not... Which as, I think would potentially be okay. I mean, as that's long a very as plausible future, I think, right now, right? I mean, because is that, you know, one network, I mean, maybe the post office network would be literally optimized for sending messages back and forth. Right, text. Could be optimized for text. I mean, it's something very simple, but then, you know, there's a network that's optimized for video and there's a network that's, uh, you know, is the free network that's all the, you know, the... That's like that's branding sort of like itself the Linux as like the, option, the right, sort right, right. of like hippie techno utopian network, you know, and they're like, and all sure. these things are competing with each other, but maybe a lot of them, except other than the one that's trying to be neutral as part of its branding, maybe a lot of them aren't actually neutral. It's just that there's options. Right. Well, and if that, which, if that happens, that's highly inefficient from the point of view of network building, right? But it's less terrible. But it's less terrible than a world of no network neutrality. Right. And it's a world that could potentially happen if we get to the point where, you know, where the technology allows us to have such redundant networks without it being, you know, an economic uh, problem. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's a possibility for the future uh, that's a little bit more pleasant than the other possibilities. But, I, you know, I, I have dark uh, feelings about this. I mean, we've been basically uh, ringing the same bell for the last 10 years, and it's not obviously just us. A lot more uh, well-known people than us have been doing it. And uh, it's just basically gotten worse and worse, and exactly everything we uh, worried about uh, happened uh, more or less the way we expected. If you go back and read uh, Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace by Larry Lessig, I mean, he basically predicted in some fashion. Or some of the old Tim Wu stuff, which is still up on his site. I'll link to that as well. It's it's been predicted, I mean, down to Comcast being the adversary. It's really all uh, very much uh, correct. And so, uh, you know, sadly, I think we're most likely just going to accept this new reality of a much more locked down world fairly unquestioningly and not realize how bad it is until it's too late. And then, you know, by that time, we'll be in a situation where uh, anything that's trying to tell us how bad it is will be very easy to lock or throttle or just make disappear. If the network reaches such a monopolized point that, you know, you just really can't come back from that because it can, you know, stomp on everything that might challenge its authority. Right. right, right. Well, and that's that's the real uh, nightmare scenario. So call and write uh, the FCC and, um, I don't know, uh, post about it and do whatever you can yeah, do. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'd tell you to do things so that were more effective it. if I could think of any. Yeah, if the, you know, but... Um, think really hard. Yeah, whatever you can do, do it. And uh, this fight is not over now. I mean, even if we uh, lose uh, neutrality on the cable and DSL lines, the good news is that those 
are basically uh, relics, and uh, we have new technologies coming down the pike so we can fight this fight again. I mean, the spectrum really is like a place that we have to focus on, I think. Yes. Uh, what happens in the, in the new unlicensed spectrum is going to be, I think, uh, of great importance to the future. All right, well, this is an extremely long one, but we think this is a really important topic. Obviously, we have very strong opinions about it. We'd very much like you to comment. And if you think this is important, uh, please share this podcast and, uh, and let people know about it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.